Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn, and my guest this week is Ibu Patel. Ibu is the founder of IFYC, Interfaith Youth Corps, and is now a national figure in developing interfaith conversations and relationships. Named by U.S. News and World Report as one of America's best leaders in 2009, Ibu served on President Obama's inaugural Faith Council and is the author of several books, including Acts of Faith and Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity and the American Promise. We talked about the state of interfaith relations in today's society, the importance of connecting with young people, and where he finds hope. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Ibu Patel, thank you so much for being on the Feeling Boldly podcast. Terrific to be with you, Christian. Thank you for having me. Well, I normally, whenever I have these conversations, I end them by asking someone to talk about a story of failure from their own life. But I'd like to actually begin with the story of failure, uh, in your case, if you don't mind, because I was so taken with a story that you wrote about in your book, uh, Acts of Faith. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that. It's the beginning in the introduction to the to the book, and you talk about, I think you were in high school, uh, you were having lunch with a, a Cuban Jew, a Nigerian evangelical, and an Indian Hindu. And you mentioned that uh, when, you, when you were together, you never really talked about your own faith traditions. But you said later that your Jewish friend said something to you that really uh, stuck with you. So I'm wondering if you could share that story. Yeah. So I had this religiously diverse group of friends in high school, and we have lunch together as, as uh, you kind of draw, uh, as you kind of uh, um, cite from my first book, Acts of Faith. And uh, we never talked about religion. And in fact, religion wasn't part of many conversations at all, except for this period in high school where a group of the kind of thuggy kids in my school started going after my Jewish friend in really ugly anti-Semitic ways. And uh, we all watched it happen. And we watched just, you know, the way he suffered and it was ugly. Uh, um, and we stayed silent. And and a couple of years later, um, my friend uh, from high school uh, brings this up with me. And he says very directly, why did you stay silent, right? right. Like the worst part of that was not so much being uh, um, insulted and hurt by these, these thuggy kids in high school. It was watching my friends watch me suffer and say nothing. Mm. And I think of that as kind of a signal moment of failure, of a failure of courage, a failure of friendship, you know, a failure of faith. And, and it's, it's still one of the most humiliating memories for me. And it's important for me to remember that because I don't want to be that person again. And I don't want other people to be that person. As you think back into the various catalysts, I guess, that kind of propelled you into the work that you're now doing and IFYC, would you say that that was one of those moments that kind of helped you develop what is today IFYC? It, absolutely. It, uh, it was a moment of, um, of, blatant religious prejudice that affected a friend of mine in mm. which I was a bystander and not an upstander. And uh, I feel, you know, I just talked to this friend a couple of weeks ago, actually, and uh, it's, it has played a shaping role in my life. You know, IFYC is not just about mitigating the bad. It's very much about achieving the good, mm. um, lifting up the inspiring parts of diversity, 
uh, encouraging people to recognize faith as a bridge of cooperation and not as a barrier of division. Uh, but sometimes those things are cast in relief only when we we fail them so blatantly as I did. And so, yes, it's absolutely played a shaping role. Well, what you just said, I think, ties in really nicely with what I wanted to ask you next. And first, quote you again from the book, and you wrote this right after telling that story in the book. And uh, you wrote this, pluralism is not a default position, an autopilot mode. Pluralism is an intentional commitment that is imprinted through action. It requires deliberate engagement with difference, outspoken loyalty to others, and proactive protection in the breach. And so I, I think that goes exactly to what you were saying, to act for the good, not just avoid uh, the negative. Is that getting people to come off of that autopilot mode, is that one of the most challenging things in your work? You know, amongst the most challenging things in our work is uh, getting people to pay attention to religious diversity, period. Uh, and then to think of themselves within that context as an interfaith leader. Uh, there is so much attention paid to other enormously important dimensions of diversity, race, uh, gender, sexuality, geography, um, and comparatively little attention paid to religious diversity. So I would say one of our first challenges is to help people develop what we call a radar screen for religious diversity, help them pay attention to uh, just the fact that we live in this religiously diverse democracy, maybe the most religiously diverse nation in human history and the most religiously devout nation in the West. And it, it affects everything from how we practice medicine to what it looks like to be a good teacher, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to, to what uh, um, kids do on the playground and to how athletic teams operate. You know, religious diversity is part of the warp and woof of American society. And with having, after having seen that context, to ask yourself the question, what can I do to promote greater cooperation, greater respect? In other words, pluralism is not a spectator sport. Interfaith mm -hmm. leadership requires a set of skills and a knowledge base and a commitment. And, and, and it is very much an active endeavor. You, you also touch upon that as you were talking about kind of the early days of trying to get IFYC going and you were getting some no's for funders and some of them were just donors. Some donors were skittish about touching on a religion or funding anything that smacked a religion at all. Why is it that people are don't either pay attention to religious diversity or are nervous about talking about it? It's an excellent question, Christian. And this is, you know, part of why IFYC exists to kind of, um, I, I would like to think, contribute something valuable to this, right? I think part of it is people really don't have a radar screen for religious diversity. They really just don't see it. And so, for example, I've noted to many people that, you know, Joe Biden is only the second Catholic to be elected president. And that's shocking to them. Uh, six out of nine Justices of the Supreme Court are Catholic, and that's shocking to them, although Biden's Catholicism is really central to who he is, mm -hmm. and, and the Catholicism of, of, our, of these justices is central to who they are, not only as individuals, but in some ways to their, to their judicial worldviews. Uh, Catholics, there are 230 Catholic colleges and universities in the United States. There are hundreds and hundreds of Catholic hospitals. There are thousands of Catholic K-12 schools. And you can imagine, you know, one mental exercise to do is to think, what if those all went away? What would be left, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
a big part of what we try to do at IFYC is just help people see this religious diversity and pay attention to the important role it plays in our society. Everything from how it motivates individual people to the role it plays in political discourse to the, to the fact that so many of our civic institutions, hospitals, universities, uh, uh, private schools, social service agencies, disaster relief organizations uh, have been inspired by religious commitments and built by religious communities. So seeing it, I think, is important. And then you have to develop a language for engaging in it. And I think that a lot of people lack that language. And part of what we try to do at IFYC through books like the one I wrote called Interfaith Leadership is help people develop a positive and proactive language for religious diversity and for interfaith leadership. That's a really important point because I think perhaps, I mean, I can think of a few reasons myself, but because you name, because hospitals might have a quote unquote Catholic sounding name or in my own tradition, the United Methodist Church, there are some hospitals that have, or colleges that have a Methodist or Wesley or somehow in their name. And people are so used to that that it becomes any other name. And so they don't, they don't pay attention to the nuances or, as you noted, the origins of, of how they started. In addition to, I wonder, and this probably gets into why it's so important for IFYC to reach young people and young adults, is as, as there's a growing number of young adults, at least that's what various surveys tell us, who have uh, not as much interest in, in religion, um, is that also a challenge for you? Or do you find in your work with IFYC that people, especially in that late teen, early 20s, are hungry for those kinds of conversations? Well, let, let me address the first point you're making, which is I, I absolutely believe that people take for granted the positive role that religiously inspired institutions play in our society. So let me give you a set of other institutions that were founded by Methodists, which you might well know, but which lots of people aren't aware of. USC, Syracuse, Duke, Emory, right? These yeah. are all institutions. Northwestern, I'm going to throw Northwestern, Northwestern in there too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and by the way, there, there are something like 120 and virtually nobody recognizes that, right? Unless yeah. you're at Divinity School at Emory or Duke, uh, um, uh, or you happen to walk into the chapel at USC, do you do you realize that? But but what I really want people to recognize is this institution doesn't exist. Northwestern does not exist if a group of Methodists don't build it. Mm -hmm. And I think of this like William Carlos Williams' red wheelbarrow, the you know the famous poem that so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow. Uh, beside the white chickens glistening with rain, and and you only realize how much you depend on it uh, when it's not there anymore. You know, Joni mm -hmm. Mitchell said, "You don't know what you got till it's gone." Right, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 that, first of all, to just have an appreciation for if there's a tornado or a hurricane in your area, it's the Southern Baptists and the and the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints who are likely to to help you get to safety you know, mm -hmm. along with the Red Cross and, and maybe some officials from your city. These, these faith institutions have contributed a great deal to our society. And again, just do the mental exercise of what if they all disappeared overnight? And not just the churches and the synagogues and the mosques, but the hospitals and the universities and the schools, right? As far as um, interesting young people in this, so, so uh, you know, a lot of young people are very interested in spirituality. 
a lot of young people are very interested in diversity. And so situating religious identity and diversity within those frameworks is not hard to do. But what we also say is, if you're a doctor, your religious identity certainly matters, but actually your patient's religious identity mm. probably matters more. And so to be a good doctor or a diplomat, it, it is part of professional excellence to be able to have an understanding of what a Jewish family does when a baby is born, what a Muslim family does when a grandfather passes away, and how a Buddhist might have a different definition of death than you do. That's just part of being a medical professional, right? And so we really want interfaith issues to be interesting to you, but that's not the only reason these are important. They're also important because if you work in disaster relief or diplomacy, you're going to have to have fluency with religious identity and diversity to do your work well. Yeah. I was really inspired by, and it, had many aha moments when reading Acts of Faith, one of which, again, speaking from my own tradition and a lot of United Methodists, I think a lot of mainline Protestant churches too, people talk about the need for robust youth ministries, but they don't always follow through with that, whether either funding or they've got, well, we've got this room up in the upper level of the church. It's got a bunch of boxes in it. It's kind of cold, but we'll give that to the youth. (laughs) And you point out in the book uh, how some religious totalitarian organizations know how vital it is. Now their um, long-term goal is sometimes negative, but always negative in, yeah. in case of religious. Yeah. Yeah. So, but they know how important it is to reach young people. And so when you wrote that, it kind of was an aha moment for me that I'd never had before. And I kind of like, I can't believe I didn't think about this. And so um, do you feel like the work that you're doing both in pointing that out, is it beginning to sink in? I mean, I'd like to think so. And first of all, like I, I run an organization. I know how hard it is. And the last thing I want to do is like, you know, uh, um, uh, give people who run organizations, whether it's churches or denominations, another headache, right? Like I'd much rather... Um, serve as the role of an inspirer and and articulating a hopeful aspiration. Um, but all of us are who are where we are because somebody played a positive role for us mm-hmm. when we were young people. And and oftentimes that 14-year-old or that 18-year-old or even that 22-year-old uh, doesn't have the language to express gratitude then. Uh, and in fact, might express the opposite of gratitude then. And when that person is 10 or 20 years older, they think back, that youth group when I was 14, that was really shaping for me. Um, and, I, I, you know, part of what strikes me is just how young so many of our inspiring faith and interfaith leaders were when they began their journeys. And so King mm-hmm. is maybe the signal example of this. King is 26 in Montgomery, Alabama, leading the Montgomery bus boycott. And imagine how young he is when he... Uh, first begin first begins to read Gandhi and to mm. consider a Gandhian kind of understanding of nonviolence and and reading that into the Christian tradition, right? God does not drop, but you know, one or two kings on a nation every century. Uh, but there's lots of local kings. There's lots of mm. local people who are doing really important work, who are who they are, teachers, nurses, 
church planters, imams because of what happened to them when they were young. And I just think remembering that and investing in it is super important. Yeah. I guess part, I guess part of me wants to also, as, it, as I was reading it, it wasn't a little bit of a maybe criticism of my own tradition, but also for me too, just as a reminder for me, just to continue to know the importance of it, investing in, in young people. Because I think you're absolutely right around, for, and youth leaders know this, but you, you're not necessarily going to get the immediate thank you. What you have done for me today as a 15-year-old, I can never thank you enough. But when they're 35, that's maybe when they realize like, wow, that youth leader really invested in me. And so um, that's an important thing to remember too. Yep. Yep. So um, in August, um, and I I wasn't quite sure, did IFYC, IFYC with this major study called Ideals, was IFYC the um, organization that really got that going? Or did you work with other organizations in putting out this, this study? We were the catalyst in it. Uh, okay. We partnered with uh, a professor named Matt Mayhew at The Ohio State University and Alyssa Bryant-Rockenbach at North Carolina State. And they had research teams at their universities working on this with us. So it's a study called Ideals, and it's probably the most ambitious study of religious diversity ever done in higher ed. And so we were one of three uh, research partners in that. Can you talk about the process of putting it together and why you felt like it was needed? Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's a, a, a very rigorous study. It, it's uh, th- the big question that we asked was, was what impact does higher ed, does going to college have on the way people understand their own religious identity, the way they understand religious diversity in general, and the way they engage in in, in interfaith issues. Uh, so, you know, highly academically rigorous, meaning the kind of scales were done by scholars of surveys and studies along these lines. Uh, it involved 120 campuses, some 20,000 students. It was longitudinal. There were three administrations, one before students entered college. Uh, the second was after their first year in college. And the third was when they were done with college. Um, so that was the way that was the way it was put together. And, you know, we think that this is the kind of study that people are going to be drawing from for a quarter century, if not more. There were some, I read an article, some of the things that were pulled out of the study that I, well, first, some that I found interesting and that others uh, had lifted up too. I want to read some of these. So some of the findings, uh, 27% of the Jewish studies surveyed uh, somewhat or strongly agree that their campus welcomed religious diversity. That's just 27%. Muslim students <clears throat> were seven times more likely than their peers from other faiths to report that they regularly encountered insensitive messages about their religion. And then half of all Christian students felt that their campuses were receptive to religious diversity, just half. There are a couple of others that I found really interesting. One was um, the change in commitment uh, to bridging religious divides from the time you enter college to the time that you leave college. Uh, and the highest of those change in commitment to bridging religious divides, the highest change happened among Muslims, Mormons, and evangelical Christians, which I found really interesting. Yeah. So for you, what, what were there others that you thought, wow, that has either surprised you or you felt like people need to know this? Two data points that really s- stood out to me. Number one, um, when we asked students, uh, you know, which dimension of identity or diversity do you spend a lot of time on? 
75% of students spent, said they spent a lot of time on, uh, on racial identity and diversity. Uh, 65% said they spent a lot of time on matters of gender and sexuality. But under 50% said that they spent any time at all on religious identity or diversity. And amongst that, it, the highest was Muslims. So 46% of college students said that they spent a significant amount of time thinking about Muslims and Islam, and, and then religions went down from there. And what this highlights, of course, is that colleges pay a significant amount of attention to identity and diversity, but comparatively little to religious identity and diversity. And I, I think that that's, that's a problem, right? That's, that means that grad, college graduates have not thought a lot about religious identity and diversity when they enter into uh, um, the broader workforce and become, you know, full citizens in our society, uh, um, in, you know, involved in PTAs and the like. Uh, it seems to me that higher education can do better when it comes to that. And the other data point is, uh, it's a piece of what you mentioned, Christian, that 70% of Incoming freshmen say that they are committed to building bridging religious divides, but but fewer than fifteen percent participate in any kind of interfaith dialogue or activity when they're on college. And so, you know, what what people tell you is important to them is different than what they actually do. But it seems to me that there is a way for uh, for campuses to involve more students in developing the knowledge and skills around interfaith leadership. For, for me, a couple of things. One, I'm grateful for the work that IFYC does. And two, there's still a lot of work to be done. <laughs> there's still a lot of, you know, and there's there's a lot. I, mean, I appreciate your interest in this, Christian. There's lots of people getting involved in this, you know, where, so I, in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, interfaith issues were massive, right? Mm. That's when America kind of changes its conception from Protestant nation to Judeo-Christian nation. That's when Will Herberg writes the book, Protestant Catholic Jew. And we think that this is the time for a similar change to be affected, for, for the country to start thinking of itself, not as Judeo-Christian, but as interfaith America, uh, yeah. a nation that welcomes and respects orientations around religion, ranging from atheist to Zoroastrian, and has a commitment to, to, to positive relations between those diverse communities for the purpose of a common life together. I realize this is a very general question and there are probably many answers, but I, I guess what happened? What, why was there such an emphasis decades ago on interfaith conversations to, to now perhaps it's not quite as a robust now, and these are still important, obviously, talking about yeah. race identity. And, I think and it's a, I think that's a really important question. So I think that there's a couple of reasons for it. Number one, um, anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism were just far more salient in the early mm. part of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, the KKK was a highly anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic organization, and it was greatly influential in the 1920s, for example, and it helped torpedo Al Smith's candidacy for president. He was mm -hmm. the first Catholic to run for president on a major party ticket. And in response to that, an interfaith organization emerged called the National Conference on Christians and Jews, and it ran a whole set of programs and it advanced a new narrative of America. They're the ones who invented the term Judeo-Christian uh, that responded to that anti-Catholicism and anti-Semitism. I think the other thing that happened was um, issues around race and gender and sexuality 
really important issues come to the surface and the NCCJ largely ignored those issues. And so in some ways, the major identity movements of the middle part of the 20th century were the labor movement around class and the the Judeo-Christian movement around religious diversity. And in the latter part of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century, it's largely been around race, gender, and sexuality, which issues I think are hugely important. I just love to lift up religious identity and diversity as as equally important to those other issues. Do you find in in working with students today, I've just wondered this myself, that that there is there interest in for a student coming in, maybe they grew up either Christian or nominally Christian, and they're interested in learning more about Islam or Judaism or their Hindu friends and, and their own faith background. But are they as interested in really exploring their own traditions? Um, because they may think like, well, either Christianity, or if you're a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or evangelical or what have you, they may feel like that there's really nothing there, but they're more interested in others. In the work that you do, do you find that there is some self-reflection too, so that students think about, I I have traditions myself. And so I should probably spend some time exploring that in addition to learning about other uh, faith backgrounds. Well, you know, I, I call this in, in my first book, Acts of Faith, which you referenced earlier, I call this an adolescent discrimination against the familiar. Mm. And I'm not Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian, but I had it myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought when I first got interested in religion uh, as a young adult, when I was 19, 20 years old, I thought Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism were the B's and E's, and I spent all my time focusing there. Yeah. And it, you know, it wasn't until uh, um, somebody was like, "You do realize that Rumi was a Muslim poet?" That you know, I started to take a deeper interest in the religion of my birth. And I, I think that that's, you know, I think that that's a Christian thing to the extent that Christianity per- permeates this society, and so it is more familiar to. Christians, then, you know, it's, it, uh, a Muslim knows that he or she is a minority, uh, um, even if he or she grows up Muslim, right? So there's kind of the, the double, the, the, there's the doubleness of, of familiarity if you're Christian. Yeah. I do think it's a common dynamic that people become interested in their own tradition after having spent some time uh, studying or encountering a different religion, and and that causes a set of questions back into their own tradition. I think that that's a pretty common dynamic. Yeah, yeah. We we've beginning to find too that when the young adults we work with, if you have a chance, if one has a chance to do a pilgrimage of sorts, so for Methodists going going to England, for example, if you have the opportunity to do that and really begin to explore the roots of it, that just being that sense of sacred space is can be also a catalyst for them to explore where they come from and who they are. I think that there's lots of these kinds of catalysts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in in talking about some of the statistics about, you talk about Joe Biden and the makeup of the Supreme court. And I read the article in the tribune that you, that you wrote. And in that article uh, you wrote this for me, the lesson is simple. America can change and those on the margins can often reshape society for the better. And so I think in, in that statement and in the article too, there's, I, t- I take anyway, a strand of hope. Um, is, is, is hope something that you cling pretty closely to in order, in, in order to do the work that you do? Absolutely. I mean, look, 
you know, hope is free, you know, um, you might have to do some mental work to get there, but, but hope is free. And, you know, hope is, is, I think it's an, it's an essential quality. I think it is, it is woven into Islam. I think it's woven into America. And for those of us who are on kind of the slightly more progressive side of the ledger, which I am, uh, to have watched Barack Obama's rise from somebody, you know, who people in his neighborhood would not have recognized in the street in 2002 to a U.S. Senator in 2004 and United States President in 2008. I just think there's been plenty of evidence of remarkable things that have happened uh, that hope doesn't have to just be uh, an unsubstantiated belief. <laughs> it, 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 there, there, there are plenty of ways to tell the story of, of remarkable things coming true to substantiate being hopeful about the future. Can I ask what keeps you hopeful? We're just coming out of a, uh, the last four years when hope seemed to be a commodity that people didn't have much of. And some, and some thinking we've taken steps back after the Obama presidency. So what, what kept you hopeful these last few years and what keeps you hopeful now? Well, I mean, I, uh, I think we did take steps back after the Obama presidency, right? Like just because I'm hopeful does not mean that I don't have an, you know, that I'm not a reader of reality. Right. But I don't think, I don't think hope is just about reality. I think that, that there is this constant dialectic between faith, which is, you know, hope in things that are not seen. I think that's the language in the Christian tradition. Uh, you know, in Islam, there's the sense that, that God is, is always present, uh, even if things are not quite going your way on earth. And then there's, there are, you know, as the great poet Seamus Haney says, that there are these, you know, uh, fleeting moments where hope and history rhyme. And there, those have happened enough times in my lifetime, from the fall of the Berlin Wall, to the overthrow of apartheid in South Africa, to the election of Obama, you know, to the birth of my kids, you mm, know, yeah. um, there's, there are enough wonderful things that have happened um, that, that it's, it seems to me very much worth investing in doing some work to make some wonderful things happen again. And even if those things don't happen, you still do the work, right? Like as, as Gandhi would emphasize from his Hindu belief that the, the task of the human is to, is to do the work, is to engage in the action. The fruit of the labor is out of your hands. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, and, uh, I mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that I usually end these conversations with asking somebody to tell a story of failure and we began. So I'm asking you to share two stories, I guess, today, but is there another story that um, a failure that uh, you wouldn't mind sharing? And that can be anything personal, professional. It could be something that happened years ago or, or yesterday, uh, whatever it is. Here's, here's how I think about that. Right. Okay. You know, Jordan famously says I failed I fail all the time. You know, I missed all these last second shots, et cetera, et cetera. I fail, I fail, I fail. That, that's, that's why I succeed. And so I guess my framework on this is, is when something is not going the way I want it to, when, you know, a set of research universities are not paying attention to religious diversity the, the way that I, wanted, I want them to, the question becomes, do I need to change my approach or is the timing wrong? And so I don't necessarily think, I don't think in terms of failure in an absolute way. I think in terms of, are there things, are there ways that I adapt an approach to get the results that I need more? 
or is the timing just wrong? And I, so I'll actually end with an Obama story, which I think kind of illustrates my view of this, right? So uh, you, Christian, as a Chicagoan, you might, you might remember this. So, so some years back, WTTW, our local Chicago um, public television station, does a special on Obama. And I think it's actually just a local affair. It's not, it's not national public television. It's just WTTW. And so they like, you know, gather a cast of characters to interview uh, who were around Obama in the Chicago years and in the Illinois state Senate years. And one of those people is a guy named Will Burns, who was a staffer in, in Obama's Illinois state Senate office. And then I think was part of his congressional run in 2000 and maybe played something of a role in the Senate campaign, but not a significant role uh, and, and didn't kind of go on with Obama. He pursued his own successful career elsewhere. So they sit Will Burns down and they say, you know, what were you thinking? Where were you and what were you thinking when you watched Barack Obama give that, you know, watershed speech at the Democratic National Convention in the summer of 2004? And Will Burns says, I was mouthing the words along with him. Hmm. And here's what struck me, right? Barack Obama had given that speech dozens and hundreds of times at like Southside churches and, you know, uh, um, county fairs around Illinois when he was running for Senate, when nobody had ever heard of him, ever hmm. heard of him. He gave that speech when he got trounced by Bobby Rush in the year 2000 in a congressional race. And he gave that speech when he was on the national stage. And it occurs to me that Barack Obama was always Barack Obama. Hmm. And in the year 2000, in the congressional district in which he was running, that speech fell on deaf ears. Nobody wanted to hear about, hmm. you know, we are, we are one America. We're not red and blue. Right. And in mm -hmm. 2004 and again in 2008, that speech had an audience such that it got him elected senator and then president. And so I think there's a lot of things that are timing and there are a lot of things that are approach. And I'm, you know, I think it's maybe because things don't go the way I want them to so often that I don't have a I don't have a, a stamp in my desk called failure. I have a because it would it would run dry. It would I would use it so often. I have a stamp in my desk called you know adjust or mm. shelf and try again at another mm. point. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, I guess you know there are moral failures. The way that I failed my friend in high school, the way we began this podcast at the top, but in terms of like strategic approaches and the things like and things like that, I just think that there are constant ways of doing things better. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to whenever I talk to people about this, about, about the need for reflection, about the need to for strategizing around you think back about if things don't work out the way you think. And to do that kind of, uh, you know, autopsy or reflection or what have you to kind of get a sense of, all right, what either what can we change? Or as you noted, what could, can we try this again in the future? Indeed. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, Ibu, thank you so much uh, for uh, spending this time with me and thank you for the work that you continue to do with IFYC. Grateful for your interest, friend. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Ibu for giving his time for this conversation. You can learn more about IFYC at ifyc.org and you can also follow Ibu on Twitter at Ibu Patel. Some of you may have noticed that it's been a few weeks since my last podcast episode I have a new writing project, and that's taking a lot of my time. So for the next few weeks, 
The podcast will be a little sporadic, but I hope you will subscribe so that you can hear more of these conversations in the future. You can also go to my website, christiankuhn.com, to listen to back episodes and to also see some of, my, some of my writings. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.